Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, there are many ways of getting our show. You can download directly from our website at techcentral.ie. Use a smartphone podcast app, Apple Podcasts, or turn us on every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. This week, we're taking advantage of a kind of a quiet week news-wise so that we can give you something extra special about technology and how it affects our character. For example, if a celebrity retweets you, is that more emotionally important to you than, say, a birthday card from your mother or your brother? Uh, Do you get upset when your close friends don't like some of your Facebook updates? Or even when we're walking down the road, do you constantly have to dodge people who are staring down at their smartphones? One person who looks at how technology changes our behaviour and our values for better and for worse is Professor Shannon Valor, and she was in town to deliver a stunningly interesting lecture at Trinity College this week. Now Kitson caught up with her to find out more on her thoughts about how technology can help us live not only more productive lives, but more ethical ones too. Today I'm meeting with Professor uh, Shannon Valor, who is a senior professor at the Department of Philosophy at Santa Clara University and also author of Technology and the Virtues, a Philosophical Guide to a Future Worth Wanting. Um, so let's let's just jump into it, Shannon. I mean, one of the things that philosophy sort of struggles with as a field, one of the central questions is how should men live? Um, so we're in a technological future, things are becoming, you know, I, I guess the pace of change is faster, the way people interact with each other is becoming faster. So has the conception of how men should live changed as well? Absolutely. I, I would say that the conception of how we should live is always changing because the question always depends upon the possibilities that are open to us. And one of the things that technologies do is expand the range of possibilities, the range of kinds of lives that we could choose. So the kinds of lives we live today would have been impossible to choose 2,000 years ago, even if we wanted them, right? Even if we wanted 2,000 years ago to live exactly as we do today, and I'm not sure that that would have been the choice, still, it would not have been a possibility because the technologies condition what kinds of lives that we can choose. The technologies, though, though, also change us. They change our values. They change our perspectives. They change our goals. And they change our bodies, our minds over time in ways that can also shape our sense of what a good life is. So I think we use technologies to create the kinds of lives that we want from our present perspective, but the technologies then change the kinds of perspectives that we have on the good life. So it's a constant sort of circular process of adaptation uh, and choice. And when we're looking at this concept of the good life and the virtues that, that come with it, if you will, which virtues do you think are, well, when we look at traditional virtues such as, such as putting a value on the family, mm-hmm. um, 
how are these being affected by the rate of change? I mean, I remember uh, Alvin Toffler's wonderful book, Future Shock, uh, when he was talking about the, the temporality of people's relationships, where he foresaw a time when marriages were getting much shorter mm-hmm. and people would refer to themselves, uh, in one case, as unremarried yes. as opposed to divorced. Um, so are we seeing technology having this sort of uh, exaggerated effect, I suppose, on how we consider what a good life is? I think we do see this happening in certain places and in certain cultural contexts. So one example uh, that uh, I was talking about a journalist with earlier this morning um, is the way that dating apps like Tinder or the like uh, really change the temporality of relationships and the dynamic of dating or uh, uh, or uh, any kind of romantic relationship that we choose to get into because one of the things that these devices do is constantly open up escape hatches, right? They, they say, okay, here you're in a relationship, but you're entering into a period of difficulty. Ah, look, here are a hundred other people who perhaps might be more compatible and perhaps one might want to pursue one of these options. And so the amount of difficulty that we're willing to undergo in persevering through relational difficulties, I think technologies have something to do with how willing we are to persist through challenges in relationships, and that certainly can affect the duration of relationships. So um, I, th- I think we have to consider, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do, do we want more uh, monogamous, enduring, lifelong commitments to people? If that's what we want, then perhaps we should consider whether our technologies are making that more difficult or more accessible to us. If that's not what we want, then we should be having technologies that give us other alternatives. But I think it always comes down to an ethical question of the kinds of lives that we want to live. Uh, One of the things that you touched on there was the role of patience, Mm -hmm. Um, very much a a virtue that's under threat because we, we get used to the the quick hit of the like on Facebook, you know, the, the retweet or the fit, the favorite on sure. Twitter. Um, is this sort of one of the, the prime, is this the front line of the, the virtue war, if you will? I, I think it's incredibly important. It's actually the first virtue that I wrote about in my work on this uh, quite a few years ago, about 10 years ago. I wrote about social networking technology and the virtues and patience was one of the things I focused on. I focused on the patience it takes to actually carry through a conversation that starts out in a very unfamiliar and uncomfortable place. So I used in that paper the example of uh, being a a young child or a teenager and being stuck with a a grandparent for the afternoon and uh, being in an environment where there are no digital toys and, and there's no distractions and being forced to... You know, th- work through the awkwardness of it and, and make a connection uh, that um, that that goes deeper than uh, than might otherwise be the case, and and the patience that it requires to kind of fight through the awkwardness of of conversations that that might not start out easy. And the problem is that today there's always a digital distraction, right? There, there's always an opportunity uh, for both parties to pull the escape hatch and 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 find a way out of the discomfort. And we see this in in other areas, too. So think about boredom, right? Boredom is a a mental state that humans don't experience as particularly pleasant. And so increasingly we have technologies that promise that we can exist without boredom. 
right? As, as long as you have your devices with you and they're charged, you need never be bored. That's the promise. But the question is, what functions has boredom served with respect to human well-being? Has boredom ever been good for us? Well, think about the way that boredom forces you to activate your mind, right? If you, if you don't have a choice except to live through the boring situation, you have to activate your imagination, you have to start thinking. You have to start envisioning. Uh, you have to, or you have to start moving. You have to do something um, to alleviate the state of boredom, and so you have to rely upon your own resources um, to create a different situation. But now we don't require our own skills in order to do that. We have a technology that requires no particular skill to operate that will alleviate our boredom for us, and. Think about all of the ideas that have come to people as they were thinking about nothing in particular, right? And just allowing their mind to wander. Think about all the great inventions. Think about all the great social insights. Think about all the great personal insights that have come from being stuck in a moment of boredom. And increasingly, those windows are closed for us by our technologies. Uh, They say to us, oh, you're bored for a half a second? Here, watch this. Play with this. Um, And I think we need to think about what we're losing and not just what we're gaining in terms of momentary satisfaction. I I guess it it does warrant the uh, reappraisal of the seven deadly sins in a a sense where sloth can actually be something quite healthy. Yes. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, right? And think about it. The problem today is not that people don't work hard enough. Uh, The problem is that uh, people uh, aren't given any opportunities to relax, to reflect, uh, to, to consider the, the larger context of their lives or their society. Uh, and and I, I think also we have to consider the fact that that's, that's in the interests of those who would prefer that citizens not be particularly reflective about uh, what they want from their society or what they want from their lives. Um, there, there, there is, I think, a system in place that rewards... Um, those who simply passively consume the forms of life that are available on the market or consume the forms of political identity that are manufactured for us. And the skill of constructing political identities or political goals or the skill of constructing personal goals for yourself, those sorts of skills, unfortunately, I think are are in decline. Uh, And I don't think that that's necessarily how it has to be. And I don't think that technology in itself is to blame. It's the particular kinds of technologies uh, that we've allowed ourselves to become satisfied with that are the problem. And that's really a, a human failing and not, not a, a something that you can blame on an inanimate object. So what I think we need are better technologies that are designed to cultivate the kinds of human skills and virtues that we need in order to live well. I guess it's almost looking at the example of brain training uh, on a smartphone. You know, I mean, it's right. a particularly benevolent technology that has caught on pretty well. Sure. And there are lots of applications that we can think of where technologies might, for example, give us more practice in moral imagination, which is an important skill that I talk about in my book. Um, and it's a, it's a skill that allows us to cultivate forms of virtue like empathy and care that might not otherwise come to us just 
naturally, right? So it, it's natural to have empathy for those who are like us. It's not very easy or necessarily uh, second nature to have empathy for people who live very different lives, who look very different from us. But we can use technologies to cultivate that kind of empathy. So there are some projects that are going on right now, one Stanford uh uh, funded by Stanford University uh, and uh, their virtual human interaction lab. Another uh, is funded by Oculus, their VR for Good program. And these are attempts to develop virtual reality films and games that will cultivate uh, empathic responses and understanding for communities, identities, um, persons who, who are very different from ourselves. So I, I certainly don't think that uh, technologies need be an obstacle to cultivating the skills for living well. They can actually help us in ways that would have been uh, more difficult without them. Uh, in your book, you talk about certain challenges that uh, emerging technologies come with, be it VR, be it you know, climate science, pretty mm-hmm. much be it drones. Sure. Um, they all bring a certain uniform set of challenges or almost benchmarks that you look at and wonder okay is this going to be good well let's put it through this filter for example uh, its impact on future generations Uh, what other tools can people use as a, a thought experiment to gauge whether a piece of new technology is worth pursuing on a societal level uh, or on a personal level or just just for the challenge? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are a lot of uh, exercises that uh, that we can go through. One of them that's central to my, to my approach is to think about how it will transform human habits, right? So from a virtue ethic standpoint, we, we say with Aristotle, right, that we are what we repeatedly do, that the kinds of habits that we get into, whether we, we realize it or not, shape our character, shape our our strengths and our weaknesses as people. So any new technology that we're presented with, we should immediately be asking ourselves, okay, uh, what sort of human practices will this replace? What sort of human practices will this make easier and more attractive? What sort of human practices will this make irrelevant or unattractive? And then think about the moral the moral value of those practices, right? And and that can really help us get some grasp uh, about this, uh, the impact of this technology. Uh, another thing we need to do is uh, find a, a balance between techno-pessimism and techno-optimism, right? So techno-pessimism is the view that uh, technology always makes our lives uh, worse or uh, or creates more problems. Uh, techno optimism is the view that technology is always new. Technology is always progress. That it always improves the human condition. And both positions are unreasonable, right? The truth is clearly somewhere in the middle. But in in the context of technological innovation, especially in places like Silicon Valley where I work, uh, the 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 um, Emphasis tends to be on on techno optimism, on the, on the view that technology is the solution to all of our social and moral problems, uh, and that every technological uh, uh, innovation is a, a social uh, a social step forward. So, one of the things that I think is important to think about is designing not just for success but for failure. Right when you when you design a certain technology, you want to think about the best case scenario and what benefits it could bring. But that's already being done in most cases, right? That's the value proposition. That's what you bring to the investors. That's what you put in your marketing statement. So that's already taken care of. What's not often taken care of is designing for failure. 
and thinking about, okay, if this technology goes horribly wrong, how is it likely to happen? Where are the problems going to arise? And then the next step is to say, okay, what sort of mitigations, what sort of uh, uh, um, fail-safes, what sort of strategies could we put in place to prevent those harms or reduce them? Right, and so thinking about uh, we, it's been called uh, the practice of doing pre-mortems on a technology. Right, so before the patient dies, actually think about how it might happen. Right, and so in the case of technology, before it goes out into society and causes some uh, grievous uh, harm or some long-term uh, damage that you didn't expect, see if you can figure out in advance. Uh, the, the different ways that that might happen, and then think about what you can do uh, to keep it from getting uh, to that to that point. So I think there are a lot of design practices that we can improve upon that can be informed by a, a moral concern uh, for, uh, for for positive impact of, of, of our technologies. I guess there's almost a profit motive there, even a profit incentive for, say, the likes of Google, who, who approached the Internet very naively and didn't uh, expect human nature to come in and start gaming things as simple as SEO or Facebook who started out you know let's let's um, connect everybody and now is at the center of fake news right so where does ethics fit into the overall um, corporate structure these days I mean uh, are we going to see the likes of Google and Facebook in the same way that large companies are adopting design thinking mm-hmm. that they'll adopt ethics as well uh, we're seeing signs of, of movement in that direction and that's very very encouraging uh, so one of the uh, uh, first companies to respond in this way was uh, Google when they uh, said that they were going to form an ethics advisory board. Unfortunately, no one ever really heard much after that about what that board was, who was on it, what they were doing. Um, but it, it was a sort of first signal that this might be something that you know might be a, a model in in the in, te- in the tech industry uh, for especially for an industry that really wants as much as possible to regulate itself. Right? Um, DeepMind uh, was. Uh, 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 the, the founders of DeepMind were actually quite concerned about the ethics of their technology, and they had actually, as a condition of the sale uh, to Google, insisted upon the creation of this kind of uh, ethics oversight board. So I think it's really uh, important to note that the technology creators are often quite aware of the risks and the benefits of their technology and, and really want that to be taken seriously. Um, right now you see uh, growth in a lot of different areas. So um, there's a huge corporate partnership, the AI partnership uh, uh, for, uh, for human good that is being developed by uh, Google and, and Facebook and um, all of the, you know, many, IBM, most of the big players uh, in the AI space. And they're uh, forming uh, their leadership right now, choosing an executive director, deciding what the priorities of the partnership are going to be. Uh, and that's quite encouraging to see. Uh, I know that other comp- uh, companies, uh, uh, big uh, consulting companies like Accenture are also working on uh, programs for uh, AI and human good. Uh, so there seems to be uh, a growing consensus, and I think AI is the technology that has crystallized this. I'm hoping we'll see it sort of filter down to other kinds of technological applications as well. But there's a growing consensus that some of these uh, transformative technologies are so powerful uh, that it would be uh, unthinkable to deploy them without ethical oversight. So in my case, I'm receiving uh, much more invitations from industry uh, to come and talk about the ethical implications of AI and other technologies uh, than than I would have expected 10 years ago. So uh, it's quite nice to see that opening up. Um, there are also industry-funded uh, and professional uh, partnerships like the IEEE's 
Standards Association's Global Initiative for Ethical Design of Artificial Intelligence and Autonomous Systems. Uh, we just had a meeting in Austin, Texas, uh, a couple weeks ago, and there were uh, there are now 400 people working on that initiative. There are computer scientists, there are roboticists, there are philosophers and ethicists, there are lawyers, there are industry people, there are psychologists, right? Every possible kind of stakeholder that could have input on uh, ethical and responsible development of artificial intelligence, uh, they're all working together on this kind of project. Uh, this would have been unthinkable, I, I think, 15 years ago uh, for this to happen this quickly on, on that kind of scale. So I actually have a great deal of optimism that things are moving in the right direction. One last point I'd like to raise with you is the idea of the Uncanny Valley and how people are responding to uh, robots, particularly robots like Jibo or Pepper, Mm -hmm. that are designed for you to have an emotional response back to them to to become one of the family. where do you see these devices as you know, being something very useful or presenting very difficult ethical questions with them? Yeah, I think they do both. I think they uh, present some really interesting opportunities and potential benefits. Uh, I also think there's a, a lot of risks of them being deployed in ways uh, that, that, uh, that, that we should not want. So let me give you an example of the, the positive potential of some of these technologies. So there's been a fair amount of research showing that uh, social robots can be quite helpful in uh, therapeutic applications with uh, children suffering from autism, and that uh, social robots can function in a therapeutic context as a bridge between autistic children and their parents or human caregivers, and uh, can, can help the child acclimate, if you will, to the kinds of social uh, Stressors that for an autistic child can be quite overwhelming, right? Um, and, and these are the kinds of interactions that we should not shy away from, right? You might think, oh, a robot should be nowhere near uh, uh, a human in a, uh, in a medical or therapeutic context, but that's, that's, that's silly. There's lots of room for social robots to do really good work uh, and we should be grounded by the facts in this case. We should be doing studies of the effect and, and where there's a clear therapeutic effect and very few risks, we should, we should be happy uh, to embrace those kinds of applications. On the other hand, if you think about the way in which uh, many children um, today are already being raised in their homes with essentially digital nannies, right, uh, in the form of their iPads or um, or their uh, or their video games or their other other digital devices that we increasingly uh, leave them uh, accompanied by. I, I think we need to think very carefully about the way that social robots could increasingly be used as replacements for human care that uh, we ought not to allow to be replaced. Uh, not just because you know. The children or the or the elderly uh, that, that we might leave in the companionship of robots, not just because they deserve more uh, in terms of human companionship, although although there's certainly a strong case to be made for that, uh, but also that we ourselves as p- potential human caregivers need those opportunities to uh, to learn and continue uh, to improve in caring for one another. Uh, the the kind of fundamental human need for care both giving and receiving, is sort of basic to the moral fabric of the human family. And if social robots increasingly intrude upon opportunities for human caregiving practices, I think that could have a disastrous effect on human bonding, on human development. So here's an example of a technology, right, a social robot, where it's silly to say, is this good or bad? 
because there are wonderful applications of it and there are terrible applications of it. And it's our responsibility uh, to choose and design those applications well and wisely. And that was Nal Kitson talking to Professor Shannon Valor. For more on Shannon, you can visit her personal website, shannonvalor.net. And we would like to thank the ADAPT Centre for their help with organising the interview with Shannon for this week's show. That's it for today. Of course, remember, you can get all the latest on Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie, as well as our little weekly tech radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1X. Next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Nile Kitson and Tech Central HQ. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.